universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, children, need to see some eyes. All right? I want to ask you a question, and you're allowed to answer out loud. Are you ready? Here we go. Who made you? Very good. All right? What else did God make? Okay. Why did God make you and all things? God made me, He made all things, and He made me and all things for His own glory. Now, it tells us who made all things. It tells us why He made all things, but it doesn't address the question, how did God make all things? But we find the answer to that in our text this evening, Hebrews 11.3, by His Word. The universe was created by His Word, the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, this is not a particularly popular message in the day in which we live. We live in a day when secularism and naturalism reigns, and those who embrace these views think that we're ignorant, that we're backwards, that we probably believe the earth is flat, not round, uh, that we are unscientific. And when they speak of creationism, they say that is pseudo-science, a false science. It's based on purely on religion, and it contradicts the facts as we know them. And they would go further and insist that religion and faith have absolutely no place in scientific inquiry. Well, I would insist that they not only do have a place in scientific inquiry, but I hope to demonstrate not only do we have strongly held faith commitments, But so does the evolutionist. The naturalist has strongly held faith commitments also, things that he believes simply because he believes them by faith. Uh, And yet he's not willing to acknowledge the things that he believes are taken on faith. I want to emphasize, first of all, I'm not a scientist. I never played the scientist on TV. Uh, I'm a pastor. I'm a theologian. Not a very good one, unfortunately. But anyhow, I am not presenting for you a scientific lecture this evening. I'm going to talk about some scientific uh, principles and such later on, but this is a sermon. It is, uh, the design is to help us believe what God wants us to believe about himself and about his creation, and with the result that we teach our children wisely, but also that we worship and adore our God, who has indeed created all things. So, I'm not going to so much present a defense of creationism, although I'll defend it a little bit. I'm not going to present anywhere near an exhaustive critique of evolution, although I'll present a few questions that I don't think they can answer. But my really goal, my goal is to present for us a positive view of what the Bible teaches us regarding creation and encourage you to embrace a biblical worldview for the world that we can see around us. The title of my message is Creation Ex Nihilo. Ex Nihilo means out of nothing. Now, that's actually not the whole message because it's my second point. Uh, There are three major points here. One is creation by fiat, which means by the spoken word. Number two, creation ex nihilo, out of nothing. And then thirdly, we understand these realities by faith. So, Let's talk, first of all, about creation by fiat. The first thing that we read in the Bible is that God created the heavens and the earth. Now, again, we want to acknowledge 
that the Bible is not a scientific textbook per se. You're not going to open your Bible to find out the finer points of molecular biology, all right? Uh, it's not going to give you that kind of, those kind of scientific details. But the Bible is inspired by God. It is true and accurate in everything it affirms. So whatever it says about the world around us, we can believe is true. And we should believe it as true. So when the Bible tells us that God created all life, created all the world, he created plants and animals and birds and bugs and everything else, he created man, we must believe those things to be true because it is in the Word of God. The very first thing we read in the Bible, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, just a side note here, the writer of Genesis, who was Moses, is not defending for us that there is a God. He assumes that. We believe in God. We believe God's always been there. And in the very beginning, the beginning of what? The beginning of the world, as we know it. God was already there, and he created the heavens and the earth. That's the starting point of God's self-revelation. It's the creation of this world. And then the pinnacle, the high point of creation, of course, is the creation of man. But that's the consistent biblical message that God created everything that exists. Psalm 96, verse 5 said, For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, made the heavens. All right, that's not a statement so much about creation per se. It's a statement appealing to God creating to show the difference between God the one true God, and false idols. In the book of Job, we find this, this, uh, this story of Job experiencing intense suffering and crying out for God to give him an explanation. If you're not going to give me relief, at least tell me why this is going on. And he comes to a point where he virtually demands an explanation. And God says, Job, would you judge me in order to vindicate yourself? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you will answer me. And then he, God goes into two chapters, a litany of, where were you when I created the world? Where were you when I did this? Where were you? And he goes back to creation and his, his creation and his sustaining uh, over all of creation. And after two chapters, Job goes, okay, Lord, I get it. I'm sorry. I'll put my hand over my mouth. I won't say anything else. I, I never should have raised these questions. God said, well, that's all fine and good, but I'm not done yet. And for two more chapters, God again recounts creation to help Job see himself in light of a holy and a sovereign God. When Paul went to Mars Hill in Athens, he preached to a, uh, a group of, uh, of Greek philosophers. They knew nothing of the Old Testament. They knew nothing about the one true God. Paul saw all these temples to all their various gods, and he saw one temple dedicated to an unknown God. And so he used that as a bridge, and he said, you know, you talk about a God you don't know about, I'm going to tell you who that God is. And he says this, he says in Acts 16, 24 and 25, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything else. So the starting point for Paul to bring the gospel to these Greek uh, philosophers was creation. Our confession very clearly, very explicitly affirms this biblical teaching of creation. I want to read you just the first paragraph out of our confession about creation. So listen kind of carefully here. It says this, in the beginning, 
it pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, emphasizes the Trinity, for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness to create or make the world. And all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, and yes, we do believe in a literal six-day creation because that's what the Bible teaches, and all very good. That's what our confession of faith says, and we believe that. We embrace that. This is not, Hebrews 11.3 is not merely the, uh, the, 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 the musings or the, the, the conclusion of an ancient uh, uh, pastor who knows nothing of modern scientific discoveries. And so he says, well, it must have come from God. Well, no, it did come from God. Now, this doctrine of creation affirms a number of attributes about our God. First of all, that he is eternal. In the beginning, God created. The beginning it's speaking of is the beginning of this world, but God was already there when the beginning happened because he has no beginning. God is eternal. Secondly, God is self-existent. He doesn't need or depend on anyone else or anything else for his existence or for his sustenance. God is self-sufficient, self-existent. He didn't create himself. He's uncreated. He is uncaused, but he's the cause of everything else that exists. There are those who believe in the Big Bang Theory, that there was this huge mass of energy that was all compact, compressed, and at some point, 13 point however many billion years ago, it suddenly exploded, and it produced matter, and it produced all that is now uh, the solar systems and the galaxies and all the rest, and ultimately the earth, and through the marvel of the random evolutionary process, it even led to life, human life. Uh, how sweet is that? But they believe that all of that was created by natural processes. That's the key. Everything that, that, that exists came into being through purely natural processes. Well, I have a question for you. Okay, you're telling me where all the matter came from. It came from the Big Bang. Where did the energy for the Big Bang come from? See, they, they, they would recognize there was something before the Big Bang happened, and my question is, well, where did that come from? Because it had to come from somewhere. Now, when my son was five years old, he said, Dad, I know the Bible teaches that God made everything, but who made God? And I said, son, nobody made God. He's always been there. <laughs> and my five-year-old son revealed just the purity and tenderness of his heart when he says, you're lying. I don't believe you. <laughs> I said, well, let me go get my Bible, and I'll show you that, that, that nobody created God. He's always been there. No, no, I don't want you to do that. I'm like, okay, we'll be patient with it. I'll, I'll, let, the, I'll let that slide for a bit. I'm not going to, you know, discipline that. I'll just see what happens. That was at lunchtime. So that night when he was going to bed, we, you know, we, we prayed together. And when we finished, he said, Dad, I don't want to go to school next year. Remember, he's five years old, five years old. And I said, why don't you want to go to school? Because I don't want to learn how to read and find out that nobody created God. I mean, that's some pretty sophisticated, rebellious thinking, isn't it, in a five-year-old heart? Okay, now he believes that God created now. But anyhow, there is this, uh, there's that question, where did God come from? And, and philosophers have asked that question for millennia. Well, the Bible tells us that God has spoken. He has revealed 
the truth about himself. And what he's revealed is that he is eternally self-existent. No one made him. He has always been there. He is God, and he is beyond all natural limitations. Natural processes and limitations do not apply to God. He is supernatural, if you want to say it that way. And that answer is entirely consistent with everything we believe. It's entirely consistent with the character of God. And so there come points where we don't know the answers. Well, if this is true, then what about that? And we don't know, but we don't have to know. We don't have to have a reason that we can explain because God is the source behind all of that, and he, is, he defies our explanations. But for the naturalist, there's so much he cannot explain by natural processes. And he has no answer that fits into his worldview. He has a problem. Well, the third uh, thing, God is uh, eternal. God is self-existent. Thirdly, God is all-powerful. He alone has the power to create everything that exists, the world, life, people. Children, here's another question I want to ask you. Can God do all things? Yes, what? God can do all his holy will. Okay, can God create a, a stone that's so big he can't move it? No, that'd be self-contradictory. Can God lie? No, of course not. Can God stop being God? No. God cannot deny himself or his essential character, but God can do all his holy will. He has all power. And the most amazing realities and the most amazing discoveries in our universe, as we see these pictures uh, from the, 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 the telescopes out in space, or as we see these, these incredibly intricate uh, 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 snowflakes or other, other amazing discoveries, it shouldn't surprise us at all. That's, that's who God is. That's what he's like. He's one who creates things that are beyond explanation, that are utterly amazing. Thirdly, or fourthly rather, God is all-wise. I sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to rule the sky. And creation declares the wisdom of God. If you were to examine the incredible intricacy of a DNA strand, it reveals the wisdom of God in creating the order, the, 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 the message, the communication, the, the structure of that DNA strand. Another thing that creation affirms is that God is invisible. What is seen was made out of things that are, what is, yeah, excuse me, what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. God is invisible. It's not there is this massive amount of, of, of energy uh, out there prior to creation. There was God. It always has been. And God is the one who is not visible. And he is the one who created everything that exists. Another key doctrine about God is that God is sovereign over all things and over all his creation. He has a definite sovereign plan. Sovereignty emphasizes three things. One is that he has a plan, a definite plan. He's not just winging it. Secondly, that he has the power, all power, to accomplish his sovereign plan. And the third thing is God has the authority to make and execute his sovereign plan. He has the right over all of his creation because he made it himself and for himself. And if you go back and read Romans 9, Paul is explaining and defending not only the truth but the rightfulness of sovereign election. Was God unfair that he says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated? And Paul's 
the fundamental argument he makes is, who are you to answer back to God? Shall the pot say to the potter, why did you make me this way? Doesn't the potter have the right to make whatever he wants out of the lump of clay? Because he's the potter, we're just the clay. Paul's appealing to the doctrine of creation when he defends sovereign election. And despite what the atheistic, naturalistic, evolutionary scientists might say, there is a God in heaven. He is the creator and sustainer of everything that exists. And those who deny his existence, those who mock us who believe in God, they are ignoring compelling evidence all around them. Romans 1 tells us that men uh, by nature suppress the truth about God and their unrighteousness. In Romans 1, 19 and verse 20, uh, we read, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. This is from natural or general revelation. For his invisible attributes that I just cited, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. And then he goes on a couple of verses later, verse 21 and 22, for although they knew God, not in a saving knowledge, but they knew God, they, were, they, were, they, they, they knew who he is. They did not honor him as God nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And if you read some of the explanations for the questions that evolutionists can't answer, you would say, that is futile thinking. Not futile as in the Middle Ages, but futile as in empty. It's folly. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were dark and claiming to be wise. They became fools. The testimony of Scripture from beginning to end is that God created the world. He created everything in the world. But the Bible doesn't just tell us that God created the world. It tells us how. It tells us that God created the world by his spoken word. That word fiat, he created by fiat, it means a command, an authoritative declaration or command. So rather than this complex, naturalistic, evolutionary process, he simply spoke the world into existence. Now, if you go back and read Genesis 1, it's very interesting. He, he, he speaks, and, and that day's uh, palette, as it were, is created. But then he forms more from that. And it doesn't tell, tell us exactly how he does that, but he speaks things, much of the world, into existence. But then he goes on. Like, uh, he says, let us make man in our own image. But then he forms man from the dust of the earth and breathes the breath of life in him. Genesis 1, 3, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. Eight times in Genesis 1, we find, and God said. Now, some of you are going, oh, wait a minute, how many days of creation? There were six. Why do you have Eight. Well, because on the third day, God said, let there be waters. And then he said, let there be dry land. Or excuse me, waters and dry land. And then he created vegetation and plants and so forth. So he said, let there be twice in that day. And then on the last day, he created by his spoken word all the animals on dry land. And then he finally said, let there be, or he spoke and said, let us make man in our own image. But God spoke, he commanded, and each element of creation came into being. That is creation by fiat. God simply, with the power of his spoken word, he created the world. Psalm uh, verse 30, chapter 33, verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. And then again in verse 9 in the same chapter, For he spoke, 
and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There Paul is appealing to creation to explain the wonders of the new creation, the transformation of our hearts and lives as children of God. But not only does the Bible teach that God created all of the world by his spoken word, it also teaches that he sustains it by his spoken word. Uh, in, in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, it says, in these last days he's spoken to us by his son, the Lord Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power talking about how God speaks. Now he's spoken to us through his son, and his son speaks by his word, the word of his power and sustains the entire universe. So we see here, first of all, that Hebrews 11.3 says God created the world by fiat, by his powerful word. But secondly, we see that he created the world ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. The Latin word, out of nothing. All right, go impress your friends with that one. By faith, we understand the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, there is a universally accepted law, scientific law. It's called the law of causality, or the law of cause and effect. And what that law states is that for every effect, there must be a specific cause. The naturalist says, yeah, there are natural causes for every effect. All right? Uh, some would... Sim- sim- Uh, summarize it this way, you can't get something for nothing. There's always a cause for every effect. That's a natural, it doesn't apply to God because he defies nature. He is beyond or uh, uh, supersedes nature. But all the energy and all the matter in the universe cannot just appear with no cause. There must be some specific cause for everything that exists. Now, There was a book written in 1859. Many of you know the title. It's by Charles Darwin called Origins of the Species. And for over 160 years, scientists have been trying to identify the causes, those natural causes for everything that exists, for how all things came into being. Very interesting. The more detailed discoveries they make, the more data they gather, the more information, the more specific and detailed information, the further away they get from being able to answer those most important fundamental questions. Where did it all come from? How did the universe come into existence? What is the specific cause for the things that we see? How did life come from non-life? There is no theory they put forward that makes sense. So what they do is just add more billions and billions of years. And if we can kick it far enough back in the past, we don't have to be able to observe it. And we don't have to be able to talk about it. We just say, it must have happened way back there somewhere. Does that sound like rational thinking to you? Or does that sound like faith? We'll get to that later. Some said superstition. (laughs) Maybe so. It's very interesting that today, modern theory is saying, we really don't have to know how things came into being. It's okay to say that matter and energy have always been there somehow. Or maybe they were actually created in an alternate universe. There are multiverses. 
And so there's unobservable universe out there where it was created. Okay, well, that's all fine and good, but where did that universe come from, and how did it get the matter and energy that we have at our Big Bang and all the rest? See, you're just kicking the can down the road there. But the more we discover, the clearer our, our, our understanding of the observable uh, universe around us, the more their theories don't add up. And they say, well, if we just go back far enough in time, we don't have to explain it. And my answer is, can't we do any better than that? Really? That's your answer? Well, the Bible tells us that God is the eternal cause. He is eternal. He is self-existent. He needs no other cause. He is uncaused, as I already said. He created everything that exists. There were no eternal building blocks that God used to make the world. He created all that exists, all that is visible from that which is invisible, meaning his own power. Philip Hughes in his commentary says, the unseen reality that lies behind and permeates the whole created order is that all of the power and energy of Almighty God went into creation. So he says that God's power was exerted in that spoken word. And then he goes on, he says, creation then is the bringing into being that, uh, being of that which was not previously in existence, namely the cosmic system in its entirety, bringing into existence that which was not previously in existence. He did it by his spoken word. God does not defy the law of causation. He affirms it. He caused it. But that law of cause and effect doesn't apply to him because he's not natural. He is beyond creation, beyond nature. He is uncaused. He is self-existent and self-sufficient, and he is the ultimate cause of everything that exists. That's our answer. That actually makes sense. The other guy's answer I think not so much. Well, the third thing I want us to see, and this is where I'm going to spend a fair amount of time, and I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, I'm, I'm going to go over, okay? Uh, I'm going to try not to, but I'm going to. But just, well, hopefully it'll, it won't bore you too much. Uh, but this is important. It's important we get hold of these things. We understand these realities by faith. And we should not apologize for saying we understand this by faith. That's what God's Word says. By faith, we understand the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, the evolutionary scientists would leap on that and go, aha, you admit it's faith. Yeah, we do admit that unapologetically. But it's not a blind leap of faith springing from the imagination and fancy of men. It is the revealed Word of God is an informed faith. It's a faith in the God who has revealed himself. First of all, he's revealed himself in creation. Psalm chapter 19, 1 to 3, I read in our call to worship, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day after day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words where his voice is not heard. In other words, every language in the world, if men have hearts to see, are going to hear the voice of God in creation. We call that general revelation. That's what Romans 1 appeals to, that natural man suppresses in his unrighteousness. But for all who are willing to believe, to go where the evidence points them, creation loudly proclaims the glory of God. Secondly, God reveals himself in special revelation through the Holy Scriptures. We've already seen that, that God has spoken. And this is essential to our faith. God has spoken. God has revealed himself in his word. It is the authoritative word of God. It's inerrant. It is true in everything it affirms. I said a while ago, the Bible is not a scientific 
a book of science per se, but where it speaks to scientific matters, what it says is true. There's lots more to be said, lots more to be discovered, and the Bible points us in a wonderful direction to guide our inquiry and our discovery. But again, if you want to uh, be a a medical doctor and a researcher, uh, the Bible is not going to be your sole textbook. It'd be, it'd be very helpful to keep that your, your, your foundation, but there's a whole lot more that has to be discovered. But the Bible is true in all it affirms. But natural, man reflect, rejects that. But the fact that he rejects it doesn't mean it's not true, right? Well, the third way God confirms or reveals himself is through the inner witness of his spirit. In Romans 8, verse 16, it says the spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we're children of God. There's this, this inner certainty created by the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We're sealed with the Spirit, and he affirms to us, if we're his children, that we are his children. And he inclines our hearts to believe his word. He enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We are enabled to believe By the Spirit, we're enabled to know the things that God has revealed to us in His Word. Again, that doesn't make any sense to the natural man. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 12 to 14, Paul writes, Now we received, this is 2 Corinthians, it might be 1 Corinthians, I'm not sure. Uh, I have 2, I think it's 1 Corinthians. Now we received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who's from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. We receive the Spirit, and He enables us to understand these things. And we impart those words in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. But the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they're folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. It should not surprise us if someone doesn't believe in God If he doesn't have the Spirit of God enabling him to understand these truths, it shouldn't surprise us that he thinks it's a bunch of nonsense. It makes no sense to him. He's got a set of presuppositions, a set of fundamental faith commitments that will not allow him to go where the evidence points unless God does a work of grace in his heart. Without that inner witness of the Holy Spirit, the unbelief of the natural man should not surprise us at all. Now, we understand creation by fiat. We understand creation ex nihilo, out of nothing, by faith. We can't observe it. We can't test it. We can't reproduce it. We can't prove it true or not true. Those are what you do in scientific inquiry. We understand these things by faith because God said so. That word understand means to perceive something rationally. Not a leap of faith, but, oh, now I understand this. Why? I get this. It's also not a blind leap of faith. It's a rational faith. It makes sense to believe the things that God has told us in his word. It's a faith informed by his word and it's confirmed by all the things that we see around us. When we embrace what God's word tells us and then we look at the world around us, we go, the heavens declare his glory. The, The world around us confirms the very things that God's word says about God and about what he does and what he has done. Just Pastor Mark was talking this morning about looking up and seeing this beautiful harvest moon, and Lydia and I saw it Friday night coming home, and it was like, wow, that's spectacular. And Pastor Mark was saying, I can bank on this that 30 days from now, we'll see that same moon 
full moon coming up again. And it's by the wisdom of God, the faithfulness of God, the consistency of God, that these cycles continue. Uh, It only makes sense that they would be predictable like that because God is the one who created and sustains them. These patterns of nature are consistent because they were put there by an intelligent designer, an intelligent creator. It's not random. It's very, very clearly established. Now, in my feeble mind, I, I, I can't come up with any way to believe that random evolutionary processes could account for the kind of stability that we see in our universe. It takes people way smarter than I am to find a way to believe that. Now, I don't I didn't say wiser. <laughs> it takes an expansive mind that goes places my mind doesn't know how to go in order to believe that all that could simply happen by chance. When you look at the intricacy of atomic particles, of the DNA code, it only makes sense to conclude there is a wise creator who made that. There's a, uh, in the 1970s, the, you might have heard the, the, uh, the, of the, the field of study called intelligent design. There was a, a young man who had just gotten his PhD in chemistry, and he went, to, went out to Labrie in Switzerland where Francis Schaeffer was teaching. And he uh, was grappling with how do we address science from a biblical perspective in, in a way that actually makes sense? How can, we, how can we address the questions people are asking? And he, uh, he noted the DNA particles, the this, this string of incredibly complex and orderly information. He said it's essentially intelligence encoded in biological structures, and he said that has to point to someone who actually did it on purpose. It had to be an intelligent designer, an intelligent agent. And his, he said, my conclusion is not based on religious faith. It's based on experience. And he says this, whenever we see a message, whether it's written on paper, flashing on the computer screen, scratched in the sand, we invariably assume it was written by an intelligent agent. We don't think that the rain fell on the sand and somehow the drops fell in just the right way that it would write any kind of an intelligible message. You'd say, that's utterly silly. There's nothing in observable nature that would lead us to believe the complexity of a DNA molecule could be written by chance. The idea, he says the idea of intelligent causes is just as scientific is the idea of natural causes. In both cases, we draw our evidence from experience. Experience tells you it couldn't have happened that way. There's nothing we observe that would point us to believe that. In fact, and his point is it makes more sense to conclude that complex chains of highly organized information were designed and created intelligently rather than to believe that they're a result of random natural causes. So by faith... We understand that God created it all, faith because he told us so. It's not just a rational conclusion. He told us, and we accept that. And that intricate DNA code speaks to God's infinite wisdom. But what does our experience in the visible world tell us? It tells us that kind of order, that kind of sophistication, that kind of intricate design doesn't happen by chance. Everywhere we look, whenever we see 
design, whether it's a building or a sculpture or anything else, when we see something that's clearly designed, we assume there is a designer and a builder. There are no natural processes that lead to such developments. Do you know the word entropy? Entropy is the, uh, it's the law that matter and energy always go from order to disorder unless there's some force keeping that from happening. And so entropy, natural processes always lead to chaos, not to greater order. Things naturally degenerate, not the other way around. That's called the second law of thermodynamics. Henry Morris, who's one of the early creation scientists, said this. He said, entropy is that matter and energy naturally decline from order to disorder. And he says, when nature takes its course, things rust, things erode, things wear out, things die. Left to itself, nature, the natural order, always falls apart. It never naturally increases to greater complexity. The Bible explains this for us. It says the Lord Jesus sustains all things by his powerful word. That's not just the musings of an ancient uh, religious philosopher. That's the revelation of God. It's not blind faith. It's faith that's informed by the word of God. Now, I said earlier, and I want to spend a few minutes talking about this. We believe this by faith. The evolutionist believes what he believes by faith too. He has deeply held faith commitments, deeply held intellectual presuppositions, things he assumes to be true that he uses to interpret all of the evidence that comes his way. Now, he would insist, I only believe in science. But as soon as he does that, he has to redefine what science is. Uh, I looked up on Wikipedia, what's the scientific method? And it, it, it gave the right answer, so I'm going to tell you. Scientific method starts with careful observation. You look at what you can see. And then it starts asking questions about what you've observed, and it applies rigorous skepticism about what you've observed and about the conclusions you've observed. You test what you, the conclusions that you've drawn. And it says, given that cognitive assumptions can distort how one interprets the observation, we need that skepticism. Let me say that again. We have these cognitive assumptions, these preconceived notions that are filters through which we interpret information. And we all have that. Our cognitive assumptions is that God created the world by fiat ex nihilo. Uh, But the naturalist says, no, 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 it's all natural processes. That is his faith commitment, his cognitive assumption. And so based on that skeptical examination of what we've observed in our theories, we formulate some hypotheses. We look at the deductions and we, we, we say, well, this must be how it happened. And then we test those hypotheses. There's experiments. There's data-based uh, measuring statistics of whether this could be true or not, trying to prove it or disprove it. And then finally, we refine those hypotheses, those theories, or we reject them if they don't hold up under scrutiny based on the experimental findings. Now, this scientific method is practice. I mean, they teach it in school. It's, it's, it's universally accepted, right? It's not something that people go, oh, no, we don't believe that anymore. And it leads to all manner of wonderful discoveries. It's great. Okay, we believe it. And I'm not an expert here. I'm not a scientist. And I said I, I never played one on TV or anything like that. But when I look at evolution, naturalistic scientists, it seems like they're letting their, their preconceived notions lead them in places where they're not skeptical at all about their discoveries. 
or about their theories. And when their theories prove not to work, they say, well, oh, must, something else must be. They're not willing to go back and reconsider, re-examine the foundation on which it was all laid. They're unwilling, even though their theories fail over and over and over again. There's no rigorous skepticism that's required in order to maintain any kind of objective discoveries. Now, you might say, well, what are their deeply held faith commitments? Our faith commitments in Christ. It's in God who revealed himself. What is the naturalist trusting in? What's he believing? His cognitive assumptions are naturalism. He has this unshakable faith commitment that everything that exists must have a natural explanation. And so he rejects out of hand the existence of God or God's involvement in creation. Not because he can observe and test whether or not there is a God or whether or not God created or didn't. He can't test it. That's beyond. That's a matter of faith. But he's absolutely convinced that naturalism is true. He can't test that either, though. He can't observe it either, though. He can't experiment. That is his faith commitment, and he's utterly committed to it. There's a, uh, a gentleman named Philip Johnson. He's a law professor at Berkeley University out in California, which is a bastion of liberalism, but he's actually conservative. And he, as a law professor, he, he is, is really good at logic. And so he's looking at the thought processes of evolutionary scientists, and he says this. He says, if naturalism is true... If nature is all that exists, then something very much like Darwinism has to be true, no matter the state of the evidence. That is the perspective of the naturalist. If naturalism is true, and we're convinced that it is, then something like Darwinism must be true, and whatever evidence might say about it, that's irrelevant because we're utterly committed to naturalism. And he he draws this devastating conclusion. He says, Darwinism is not so much an inference from the facts as a deduction, deduction from naturalistic philosophy. It's a faith commitment. It's not a carefully tested hypothesis that has been confirmed by the evidence. In fact, so many discoveries have undercut their theories, they keep having to revise them and make them over and over and over again because they just don't work. Johnson goes farther, and he he talks about this law of entropy. He says this, the law of increasing entropy is a universal law of decreasing complexity, stuff going from order to chaos, whereas evolution is supposed to be teaching, uh, supposed to be a universal law of increasing complexity. How does that work? And he says the fact that no exception to the law of increasing entropy has ever been observed does not prove that it never happened. Okay, the fact that we haven't observed Entropy being reversed doesn't mean it never has. It simply shows that such ideas are outside the scope of science. You have to believe that by faith. If you believe that evolution happened and entropy was overcome in some way naturally, you can't prove that. There's no scientific method to demonstrate that. That's something they take on faith. That's their faith commitment. There was a Harvard scientist named John Ross. He says, there are no known violations of the second law of thermodynamics. In other words, entropy. So what he's saying is observation cannot, observe, cannot confirm a single exception to that law. So if someone is going to teach that there are natural processes that defy entropy, their view has to be based on something other than the scientific method because you can't observe it, 
You can't test it. You can't reproduce it. You can't prove it true or false. But all the evidence says it's false. Every piece of observable evidence points to the opposite of what evolution says. One evolutionary scientist in critiquing creationism said, if it doesn't ultimately rely on observations, it's not science. Well, here, here. (laughs) I agree. There's no observation regarding several key questions that he cannot answer. For instance, if the Big Bang really happened, where did all that energy and matter come from? Law of cause and effect. They don't have an answer. So they make things up. Well, maybe there's a multiverse out there. I'll get that in a minute. Secondly, how is the law of entropy reversed to explain how random evolutionary processes led to increasingly complex structures and ultimately living things? They, they, they can't address, they have no answer for that. So they just push it back more billions of years. How did life evolve from non-life? And there have been all these sophisticated uh, laboratory experiments trying to bring life from a mass of goo to show that it took, no, not, it took no intelligence to make that happen. The most brilliant minds in the world with the highest technology and the greatest source, uh, uh, amount of resources, and they've ultimately failed every time trying to prove that it didn't take any intelligence at all to create life. Interesting. One article defending Evolution said this, the origin of life remains very much a mystery, but biochemists have learned how, to, how primitive nucleic acids, amino acids, and other building blocks of life could have formed. Notice how he's hedging his bets there. We've learned how it could have happened and organized themselves into self-replicating, self-sustaining units, laying the foundation for cellular biochemistry. Astrochemical analysis hint, suggest, guess, that quantities of these compounds might have originated in space and fallen to the earth in comets. Well, they're really making stuff up here. There's no evidence to any of that. A scenario that may solve the problem of how these constituents arose under the conditions that prevailed when our planet was young. Problem is, the more evidence they gather, the more those theories just don't hold water. In other words, we can't observe it, we can't explain how it happened on earth, So let's guess it must have happened somewhere out in space. If not in this universe, maybe in another universe. Push it far enough away, and then we don't have to answer the difficult questions. Okay, well, these primitive building blocks you talk about that that, that were out in space, where did they come from? There was another evolutionist artist, evolutionary writer. He wrote, creationists sometimes try to invalidate all of evolution by pointing to science's current inability to explain the origin of life. We've only been trying that for 160 years. But even if life on earth turned out to have a non-evolutionary origin, for instance, this is a scientist writing this with a straight face. For instance, if aliens introduced the first cells billions of years ago, evolution since then would be robustly confirmed by countless microevolutionary and macroevolutionary studies. Now, wait a minute. He's willing to guess that maybe aliens introduce life into our universe. Well, where'd the aliens come from? He's just kicked the problem down the road further and just made up more stuff. These are blind leaps of faith, and they are staggering. But that's the best that the natural man can do. One other question. This is vast fossil record. 
and we've got evidence of all kinds of animals and plants and stuff that's died over the years and been buried, and now we've found fossils of those things. And if evolution was the development of simple uh, organisms into complex organisms, we found the, the original simple organisms uh, fossils, and we found the complex organism fossils, but we can't find any fossils about what they call the transitional forms. And they've looked, and they've studied, and they've observed, and the more, uh, the more archaeological digs they make and the more things they discover, I guess it's geological, but anyway, the more they discover, the more it demonstrates those transitional forms don't exist. And that's a huge question they cannot answer. And you know what their answer is? If, to a question they can't answer, they say, it doesn't really matter. It matters to me. I hope it matters to you. They were absolutely certain those transitional forms would be found, but they've not been found. And there are numerous examples of science textbooks where they actually falsified their findings to say this was a transitional form, and later it was proved that it was like a pig's jaw, or, and it's not what they said it was. The evolutionist has questions he can't answer. Now, we have questions we can't answer too, right? I mean, let's be honest. But the reality is we don't need to answer them because God is beyond our explanation. And he says in Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and our children. And there are things we don't know the answer to, but that's because God hasn't told us. But we don't have to have the answer because we have an informed faith in a self-revealing God. The things they can't answer are actually devastating to their argument. One more quote. In an argument against intelligent design, a writer said, some of the complexity seen in organisms, organisms may therefore emerge. Notice that may, not does. It may emerge through natural phenomena that we as yet barely understand. Translated, we don't have a clue. But that's far different from saying that the complexity could not have arisen naturally. We don't understand how it could have happened, but we are utterly convinced it must have happened naturally. What do you call that? Faith. Faith. Exactly right. I have no idea how it happened, but I'm absolutely convinced it did, no matter what the evidence tells me, because that's what I believe. That is faith. It's just a misplaced faith. That is not based on observation. It's not based on testing. It's not uh, objective science that follows the data wherever it leads. It's faith. And it's a misplaced faith. And they insist that creationism is fundamentally religious. It's not scientific. The reality is that evolutionary naturalism is also fundamentally religious. It's based on faith commitments. They just aren't willing to admit that. We both have deeply held presuppositions. We acknowledge ours. And we say this is where we got them from, from a God who never lies and cannot lie. They don't acknowledge theirs, but where'd they get them from? They got them from other scientists who kept being proved wrong and kept having to go back and revise their theories over and over and over again. But they don't want to talk about that. Evolution presupposes that there is no God. Well, the Bible tells us the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And they reject the idea that intelligent design created this incredibly intricate world in which we live. It's all the result of these complex but random evolutionary natural processes. He can't observe it. He can't test it. He can't explain it, but he believes it with every fiber of his being. So what's he trusting in? He would say, I'm trusting in science. No, he's not. 
He's trusting in other scientists. He is absolutely convinced that somebody has the right answer or somebody will find the right answer. He's trusting in naturalism. And he's equating that with science, but it's not science because it defies the scientific method. Where does this kind of unbelief come from? Well, in, in Hebrews 4, it tells us that no creature is hidden from God's sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And the natural man doesn't want to believe in a God to whom he must give an account. He wants to believe he's the captain of his own ship. And he's not accountable to a holy God. He's only willing to believe in a God who's accountable to him. And he looks at the world and says, it's not operating the way I think it should. Therefore, I refuse to believe that there is a God who is good and wise and sovereign, responsible for this mess around me. Because he doesn't understand the fall (laughs) and doesn't understand the curse. But when God doesn't do things the way he thinks that God should do them, he rejects the very existence of God. That is a man-centered worldview. The world revolves around me, and I am the objective determiner of what's true and what's not true. The Bible gives us a God-centered worldview. The world revolves around him. All things are created by him, for him, and through him, all things hold together. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. That's the problem. Their minds have been blinded by the God of this world, Satan, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So should we look at men like that and grit our teeth and say, what a bunch of terrible, wicked people? Or should we look with pity and compassion and say, if it weren't for the grace of God, I would be just as unbelieving and just as blind. Just in conclusion, three things. First of all, we shouldn't apologize for the things that we understand by faith. It's not a blind faith. It's an informed faith based on the Word of God. Make no apologies. Secondly, children, be careful about the influences that are coming at you from every direction in the culture in which we live. Romans 12, 2 tells us that we are not to be conformed to this world. And and Mark said this morning, don't be squeezed into the mold, the value system of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may test and approve God's will, what is good and excellent and perfect. Well, what is God's will? It's revealed in His Word. And the only way that we're going to look at His Word and our hearts are going to say, yea and amen, is if our hearts are being, our minds are being renewed, transformed by taking in His Word. There's pressure coming from academia, if not in a Christian school, even in some Christian universities where they talk about day-age theory and theistic evolution, that there's all kinds of theological problems with that that we're not going to get into right now. There's pressure from our media, from our movies. I mean, you watch Jurassic Park. It's shot through with all kinds of evolutionary assumptions, right? King Kong, all of them are. There are even professed Christians who have compromised in these matters. The very first professor to be removed from Southern Theological Seminary, I hope there's no relation, his name was Crawford Howell Toy, and he was removed in the 1860s or 70s as a Hebrew professor. He was beginning to dabble in Darwinism, and they had to say, you can't teach that here. And so they sent him elsewhere. It's been around for a long time, even infecting the church. Paul tells us in Colossians, don't be 
Don't be influenced by the vain philosophies of men. Jesus said, you know them by their fruits. Look at the fruits of where this has led. We are a culture in chaos. Morality is out the window. Families are falling apart. I read an article this past week that there is a serious problem with sexual harassment by scientists at Antarctica. They're down there doing a job, a scientific job, and they can't behave themselves because they have no morality, because they don't believe in a God to whom they must give an account. You'll know them by their fruits. There's skyrocketing mental illness. There's suicidality. There's depression that's rampant in our culture. There's confusion. People don't know if they're boys or girls and don't know what to do with that. And they're just completely ignoring what God clearly established. He created male and female, Adam and Eve, from the very beginning. And the two are to be one flesh. So kids, don't, don't, don't let the world convince you that because they speak louder than we do that they must be right and we're wrong. Look at the fruit. It's a mess. And it's rotten. And finally, I want to end with this. Creation is not something we just argue about. It's not just a polemic issue, right? It's a reality that should turn us to worship God. We're going to sing in a moment, all creatures of our God and King. Lift, up, lift your voice and with us sing, hallelujah. The heavens declare the glory of God. The intricacies of the created order that we see drive us to not only go, wow, that's amazing, but to express our amazement to the God who made heaven and earth and ourselves. Parents, when you're driving home tonight and you see the moon, it's probably going to just be coming up and just peering, maybe a little bit orange, and it's going to look really pretty. And you're going to say to your kids, isn't that pretty? Don't stop there. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of his glory. And when you see a a, a mountain and you say, wow, that's awesome. Don't just stop with, oh, that's awesome. The God who made it is awesome. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of his glory. You look at how your hand works and you think about the things we can do with manual dexterity with our fingers. And you realize you have a thumbnail that's hard so that you can pick things up and your thumb isn't just flipping over. And, and it's not just enough to say, well, isn't that cool? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of his glory. Parents, teach your kids to see the glory of God in his created order. Dave, would you come? Lead us in singing.